I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzone. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to an- another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, a planner in Kansas City, and joined with me today is Jay Shange, content manager for Strong Towns. Hello, Jay. Thank you for joining us. Abby, it's great to be here with you. So we have a really fascinating article that I'm glad you were interested in too. It is regarding water. So this was published in the New Yorker by Rachel Monroe, and it is entitled The Water Wars Comes to the Suburbs. So the Southwest region of the United States is entering its second decade of a mega drought causing critical sources of water to diminish. Last August, the Department of the Interior has issued its first ever formal water shortage declaration for the Colorado River. So cities like Phoenix and Scottsdale are moving to protect their water resources. And part of this protectionary measure means that these municipalities will either stop or slow the sale of their water to water haulers, which I had never heard about (laughs) before reading this article. And it's basically people who purchase large amounts of water and then truck that water into places with no formal water source. So these are unincorporated areas like the Rio Verde foothills north of Scottsdale, which have seen significant growth in single-family housing development over the past two decades The unique twist is that these are rural settings with no formal local government, meaning they have dirt roads, they have no water infrastructure, and really a lot of different infrastructure um, is not in these areas. So in the past, these homes have basically relied on wells, um, and many of these wells have now dried up, and they are becoming more and more reliant on these water haulers. Um, to truck their water basically to their house and fill up these cisterns. Um, And now recent drought measures are presenting this major reality check to these homeowners, many who are not aware that their water source could suddenly be cut off. In the foothills, residents have been told of a January 1st deadline, which water deliveries will be stopping, um, which is approaching very quickly with no long-term alternative approach. There had been preceding efforts to form a domestic water improvement district that was met with serious resistance uh, due to concerns about the authority that these districts hold, including the ability to levy fees and then employ eminent domain. So despite all of these uncertainties, a demand has seemingly not been affected. Houses are selling at very high price points. Many buyers are supposedly uh, not concerned by the water situation, believing that the county will step in and address the issue. Um, so this is both, I think, a fascinating topic, a really terrifying topic. I spent a lot of time just looking at the aerials of these areas that are being described. I've been to Phoenix, Arizona. We have an office there. We've done work there. And I had no idea that there are basically these these huge swaths of areas with 
like suburban style houses on them on large lots with like no infrastructure and no formal government. I think that that is so fascinating. It's amazing that this is happening in a desert, right? (laughs) (laughs) Abby, you know, I, I, my first impression was, oh my God, these aren't folks living in a teepee, hippies in the desert, like setting up a, a, you know, a survival camp. These are like $600,000 you know, 2000 square foot homes that are out there. Yeah, that's what I think is mind boggling about it. And, you know, there are people who have been in these areas for a long time. There's one guy at the end of the article who's, you know, he's been there for over 20 years. I think it said that when he uh, settled in the area, you know, he built the house, like dug up the driveway, the dirt driveway and you know, was expecting to live in this rural area off Wellwater. And he was, you know, kind of criticizing this, this situation where people are kind of moving out there for the aesthetic of, you know, living in a rural area, but then, you know, really relying on people to haul water to them or, you know, to have some other way to like, you know, live a, a certain quality of life that, may not really be afforded to you if you're living in a rural area. It's, it's, I think it's so fascinating. I had never seen this before. I can see the draw um, or the allure, I think, I, I want to say, of, of living 30 miles north of Scottsdale, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's beautiful. In, in the desert, right? I mean, I can imagine that probably at night, there's beautiful stars. I bet that it's relatively peaceful. Um, you know, I wouldn't imagine that from that particular part of of the greater you know phoenix metro area it would be really hard to you know drive into grocery stores or or things like that so i can i can see how you know the price point for those homes and the size of the homes that you're getting you know offers sort of this alluring sort of suburban semi-rural lifestyle that would really appeal to people but you know the the really interesting thing about the reality of the cost of living there um, comes right up front in this article by Rachel Monroe, where she explains that two of the neighbors are talking about drilling wells. Um, I think one of the neighbors drilled a 960 foot deep well, like a thousand foot well, and it was a dry hole. It cost them $40,000 and they got no water, right? That's like the most outward representation to expose just how, how fragile that system is, right? Yeah. Well, it feels like a really good example of the bad party analogy that Strong Towns talks about where, you know, if you think of your community as, you know, being at a party, a good party means that everybody's bringing something to the table, food, drinks, you name it, everybody's bringing something. And so by adding someone to the party, it's a good thing. It's not taking away from anybody. And in this case, this is a you know, bad party where nobody's really bringing anything to the table and instead getting their their wine and their food delivered, but just for themselves. <laughs> and this is like yeah. this quasi suburban arrangement in Arizona where there really is no discernible benefit to having additional residents to come into this community where people already live. However, it keeps growing to the point that they they kind of need to have some kind of formal system to manage these resources in place. Um, But, you know, culturally, it sounds like there's a lot of pushback. They move to this area because they want to be in an unincorporated area. But if they're unable to sufficiently serve themselves, so to speak, that's not going to work. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, one of the things that I, I think this really speaks to in the Strong Towns approach, we talk a little bit about how it's really important to think about the cost of the infrastructure that supports your community and, and to sort of build the infrastructure costs into your upfront investment and, and to realize, hey, you know, if I, if I build a 300-home suburb out on the edge of town, then sure, developers are going to pay for the roads and the water infrastructure and the sewer and the treat and the water treatment and, and all of those things up front. But, you know, 20, 25 years down the road, that really is a cost that the community is going to have to confront. And oftentimes we, we don't do a good job of doing that in the United States and in North America broadly. So I, I think this article, to me, it really points out that mistake that is sometimes made, like it's really emphasized by this sort of really interesting immediate question of how do we get water? You know, I think that it points out the fragility of the infrastructure system in like sort of almost as like a, a really extreme example. So to look at the, you know, the Strong Towns approach would be like, hey, um, you know, who, how are we going to pay for water and sewer and, and, uh, and road infrastructure into the future? And in this case, in this example, it's right up front already for this community and it exposes the fragility, um, the lack of resilience that is unfortunately for the folks that are living in this area, um, you know, confronting them already right up front. Yeah. Well, and the interesting thing about this development arrangement is that the amount of infrastructure is that they currently have is likely to be scaled much more accurately to if they were paying property taxes. That's it's not clear if they are due to being in an unincorporated area, but you know, it's due to be scaled to what would be generated by the homes. And the big challenge, you know, would be financially supporting that development pattern and then you know, coming in and adding all of that infrastructure and having the sufficient tax revenue to actually not only construct that that infrastructure, but also maintain it over time. And I, I think that's probably what a lot of the residents are concerned about when being confronted with the, you know, quote unquote, opportunity to have a formal system in place it may be very expensive, but the problem is, is that um, it's, you know, you're really not very resilient or self-sufficient if you are a- unable to draw your water from a well. I mean, I, I could see this, this pattern working out quite well if you're in a really wet area in a stable kind of environment where, you know, you want to have a bunch of suburban houses on one, two acre lots. And, you know, you're okay with having dirt roads and no lighting and, uh, you know, no sidewalks. Like you truly are going to have a rural level of infrastructure, but you're going to have, you know, your suburban style house. That may actually be a stable situation, except for it's not very sustainable when you're in a desert, especially a desert that is now entering in to a major drought. And so, yeah, you know, I, I know, I know you're a big movie expert. I love actually. Listening oh, is that, to am you. I an expert? Yeah. I love listening to you deconstruct movies in, in your Upzone podcast. I think it's always really fun. <laughs> and, and so, you know, the, uh, one of the things that, that came to mind for me to sort of take this example that we're talking about to an extreme is, Hey, 
instead of like building water systems or trucking water to our homes, like wouldn't the extreme be the example of water wars in Dune, right? And like everybody who lived in the community out here in the Rio Verde foothills would be like wearing a reclamation suit so that they, um, you know, could basically like survive on the water in their own bodies. And, you know, they wouldn't need anybody. Um, they would be completely independent. And, you know, I, I, I think that I'm talking about Dune, like the newest one, not the sting one from the <laughs> 80s. But, well, that's the aesthetic, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the, the, the aesthetic of being in a place like that, where like the idea is that you are self-sufficient and self-reliant. But the problem is that that's not the reality when it when you're reliant on, you know, people to haul your water to you. And now there's, um, you know, all these issues with drought that are out of your control and there's not really another option. And so, yeah, it's, it's really hard to be self-sufficient in these ways when you are in a desert, right? Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I lived in, uh, in Fairbanks, Alaska, there was a large group of people that were sort of young folks associated with the university system there. And they lived in what we called dry cabins where they had, you know, fire, wood heat and no running water. And people would carry water in that they would go to the water wagon, fill up five gallon buckets and sort of carry it in, which was this very, you know, self-sufficient and actually really efficient way to live. You know, nobody people used outhouses instead of, you know, bathrooms and, and they had saunas for baths and they carried their, their drinking water in and melted snow for dishwater. Right. That's like a really truly independent lifestyle. And that, of course, that's not possible in the desert in Arizona, in the Rio Verde foothills. But, um, you know, if it's in this case, they can't even actually find the water to buy, even if they had like an unlimited supply of money to bring to truck water in. In, in Fairbanks, there was this neighborhood called the Chena Hills, and people would build you know, 3,000, 4,000 square foot homes up there, and they'd build septic systems um, for gray water and sewage, and then they would truck water up the mountain, like up a long mountain, uh, you know, 800 feet in elevation. These huge water trucks would just be constantly going up the road to this neighborhood. And over the years, Abby, this is, this is not a joke. They trucked so much water up to this housing area in the Chena Hills that they actually had water from the septic systems, like filling the aquifers down below the hill. You know, like there was so much water that went up the up the mountain. And, you know, I think in this case, you know, at the end of the article, it sort of, you know, implied that maybe at some point the county is going to come to the rescue of these of these homeowners. <laughs> Which is and, ironic for a community that's very hostile against any form of organized government. <laughs> Um, like, oh, no, the higher authority will just step in when everything hits the fan. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We, we don't need the government until we kind of need them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's like with all this talk of sustainability that our general culture is engaged in, it is amazing to me how many cities are built in places that are inherently unsustainable. I mean, I was just like, reading this article and, you know, I, I think it's, it, it maybe, maybe this works if the population is way smaller, you know, at some point Phoenix was a lot smaller, but it seems like so many of these places, Phoenix, uh, California, Denver, uh, they've reached this tipping point where resources cannot possibly sustain the growing population. And 
Phoenix seems like an obvious example because it's a metro of like 5 million people in the middle of a desert. Um, But yeah, it's like you see these these things playing out in places that have wildfires or earthquakes or flooding. And, you know, we built these places and are attracted to these places because we love the beauty of the natural environment. People want to be, you know, amongst a beautiful natural setting. But, um, you know, it's like we, I, I guess as a society, it seems like we try to like actively defy and avoid any constraints that might be put upon us to the point where these things can't be avoided. And, you know, we insist on living in hostile environments while simultaneously like exploiting the environments uh, to the point where our settlement fails. Yeah. Yeah. And in this case, it's not even going to be like a, a reallocation of resources, like maybe from people who are privileged to people who are underprivileged. It's like there isn't any water left. You know, I mean, they're finding out that, you know, all of these places in the in the desert southwest, which have been really attractive to new homeowners because yeah. of the weather, like you it's said, beautiful. Low, low I mean, it's so rates, pretty. A job market. It's beautiful. Um, you know, there's a lot of greenfield where you know home homes can be put up. You know, quickly if they're you know already have like an existing design and all the materials are at hand. But um, then the then the then then you have to pay the piper, Abby, at some point, right? You would think so, but there's one person in the article who it was towards the end where they were saying that their daughter recently sold their house and got great offers and neither buyer was concerned about the water uh, situation and basically said that, you know, the county would never let 500 homes in a wealthy area go without water. And it's like you read that and you think, well, that's so very selfish, but also a somewhat reasonable perspective to have because there is this sense that the government will just step in when things get really bad and bail people out. Um, you know, but eventually you would think somebody is going to be holding the bag in this situation. And I wouldn't want to be the person who bought the $600,000 house with no water infra- infrastructure when the haulers basically stopped coming to deliver. That would... I would not want to be that person, but at what point, um, you know, does the government not have the ability to, to actually do something? And if there is no water, then it, that's going to be very complicated to try to support these developments. Yeah. How about, how about if instead of um, building a home out in the Rio Verde foothills, and, and I'm not, you know, criticizing the people who've made that choice, but I'm just saying, how about, you know, a model where instead of doing that, we build you know, a resort area um, that people can visit in the Rio Verde foothills and go out, you know, several weeks a year and enjoy the stars and enjoy the beauty. And when the desert blooms, go out and bring your family and mountain bike around, but maybe live a little closer to town. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or, you know, if you are building this pattern, like what they built in the Rio Verde foothills, you know, I'm not totally against that because it's like you're building the suburban pattern, but you have minimal road infrastructure. You theoretically could be self-reliant on wells and septic, um, but, you know, build it in a place that has much, you know, a much more reliable source of water. The desert may not be the best place to be doing that pattern, but, you know, it's, I think if you're going to 
uh, demands a rural, you know, quality of life, then you've got to know how to do that. And it, it's got to be a sustainable system and a sustainable approach to doing that. It can't be, you know, I was just working in a small town here in Missouri where, you know, there's a lot of residents that live, I mean, they live truly a, a rural lifestyle. And there's one older man at one of these meetings. I don't know if I brought this up on here before, but he was basically saying like, he looked at me and he was like, no offense to you, but, you know, city people keep moving out and buying properties out here. And then they want to light up their whole yard. They start saying they want sidewalks and they want they want the gravel roads to be converted to uh, paved roads. And they start demanding this level of infrastructure that is not we're, we're not living out here because we're demanding all of this infrastructure. Uh, you know, we have our own kind of way of life. And so, you know, the the suburban pattern is kind of neither a commitment to either. Right. It, yeah. it demands kind of both. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You know, when I, when I used to put up solar systems and battery banks, you know, in these sort of off grid developments with, a, with some partners of mine in California, you know, we would, we'd go up there and, and we'd, you know, put in the PV array and put in a battery system and charge controllers. And then people would be like, Oh, great. I have my power, you know, can't wait to go down to Costco and buy an electric dryer, you know? And we'd be like, look, you guys, we got, I got to explain to you that, you know, just because you have this, this uh, basic infrastructure, it doesn't mean that you can still, you know, use the same amount of, um, of electricity um, as if you were on the grid. You know, you have to change your demand. You have to change how much you use and change your lifestyle and sort of like make it match what's, you know, economically feasible to produce for power. And, and you know, that was always a little bit of an adjustment for people, you know, like, hey, you got to use, you know, DC 12 volt lighting systems instead of like putting up <laughs> big broad spotlights that are halogen powered out in your driveway. You know, it's it's always a little bit of a, a learning curve for folks to adjust to what's available as opposed to what they wish they had, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I think one of the, the, the water hauling so, quote unquote solution is, I mean, that is like an adjustment to kind of maintain the status quo, right? To, to try to keep that, that quality of life, what you expect, you know, in a house that is quickly becoming an unfeasible solution. And I actually am wondering, you know, with gas getting so expensive, how much does it cost to truck water to a house, you know, 30 miles away, that just seems really incredible that that is even, you know, a question. And and I, I just can't, I can't wrap my head around that because water is really heavy and just reading everything about this article just kind of blew my mind. If this idea had been pitched to your grandpa or to my grandmother, and, and they would be thinking about like building a home where there's no water. They would have just looked at you like you're insane, you know? Yeah. hundred years ago, building a place where there's no water, they'd be like, what are you thinking? You know, that that's completely impossible. We wouldn't even have a start for that <laughs> conversation. Here we are. Yeah, yeah, here we are. I mean, like I said, we were attracted to, you know, building living arrangements and really beautiful, hostile, natural environments. Um, and uh, over the past 50 years, we've been able to really continue to build that way because we live in, you know, a society that, you know, we, we put, we have respond 
poorly to constraints when they're presented. And we're very good at finding workarounds until the workarounds don't work, right? Yeah. Uh, it's like we've been very good at just doing anything we can to keep the status quo. And when it comes to water rights and, uh, you know, access to water, I mean, it's water rights aren't worth that much if there isn't very much water. So it, I, I even wonder, can you even reform how water rights work? Um, because it is so political. It's so complicated. This seems like one of those like predicaments, right? Predicaments have outcomes. And it seems like this is a predicament that is going to play itself out. And I'm not sure what it means for places like the foothills. Let me just throw out a crazy thing to sort of like bring your point home. There was a guy who was the governor of Alaska back in the day. His name was Wally Hickel. And he actually at one point was That's Richard a great Nixon. name. It's a great name. He at, at one point was <laughs> Richard Nixon's interior secretary. And Wally was famous um, for a lot of things in Alaska. He, he called Alaska the owner state because his, his idea was that Alaska owned the oil. And so we should, you know, manage its production and transportation. And one of his great big pie in the sky ideas Abby, I know this sounds nuts, but what he was going to do is he was going to build this giant polyethylene, like basically this big sock, and he was going to run it from Valdez, Alaska to Seattle. And he was going to pump it full of fresh Alaska water and basically build like a water pipeline that was like sort of suspended in the ocean. And his idea was he was going to sell water to Arizona. And <laughs> ahead of his time. And, and Wally, you wow. know, Wally was always a little bit ahead of his time, like sometimes like a generation or three ahead or of his three, time. Or three, yeah. But, you know, if, uh, if Wally was still around today, he would probably have a really good time joining us with this conversation. Uh-huh. I told you so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll leave it with that. I think that's a good, good point to wrap up on. Um, but before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything we have been reading, watching, listening to anything that's been captivating our time these days. So Jay, I will throw it to you. Abby, I've got a, I've got a down zone for you today. That's going to be a little bit of a surprise. You may not expect this from an Alaska boy who uh, likes rural living, but I am a massive Grand Slam tennis fan. I don't watch very much televised <laughs> sports, but one of the things that I'm crazy about is the four Grand Slam tennis tournaments, the French Open, the Australian Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open in New York City. And so every time those come around, I'm, I, I, you know, I take every spare moment after my kids go to bed and I'm like watching, you know, the rebroadcast of those matches. And this week there was such a great story in the uh, Wimbledon championships. There was a 34 year old mother of two, Tatiana Maria of Germany. And Tatiana ha is like ranked 120th in the world or something like that. She'd never made it, um, you know, very much into one of these tournaments. And this week she made a run all the way to the semifinals. And at that point, like lost to her best friend, Ons Jabur of Tunisia. But there were so many people who were captivated by Tatiana's um, grit and her 
amazing creative response to players who were younger and stronger and faster than her. And I, I just loved watching Tatiana Maria play this week. I, I love all the tennis on the Grand Slams, but Tatiana Maria this week is my down zone. She's amazing. If, if anybody out there even has one iota of tennis fan in them, check it out. Watch some of these, watch some of these matches that she survived because they were amazing. That's really interesting. I did not peg you as a tennis fan. Do you do you play tennis? Yes, I do. I play tennis and I'm teaching my kids. Um, I'm a soccer coach, but I'm also teaching my kids to play tennis. So we're. Yeah, uh, I, we're, I hope we're you guys have strong ACLs. <laughs> That's all I'll say about that. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, I tend to stay away from soccer and tennis and sports yeah. like those because ever since my knee surgery, I'm like terrified of doing that again. But if you haven't torn it by now, you're probably fine. Yeah, we'll see. see. (laughs) I don't want to jinx you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll feel like it's my fault. (laughs) Well, I've been working over the past, I want to say, I want to call it a year, but I will call it like nine months uh, with a client on Basically, it's a it's a local land trust that is has purchased a school that has been vacant for like 10 years. It's a big concrete tank with like beautiful masonry on all the facades. It's gorgeous. And they have been working to try to redevelop it. And I've been working with them with Monty Anderson from from InkDev um, to help them with this. And it's just been like a grueling long process. And over the past couple of weeks, we have started to get like good news to the point of like the zoning is getting close to being approved. Funding is coming through. We have like a million dollars in funding now. And it's like, it's kind of, it's just been very gratifying recently. I'm like, I've been pulling my hair out for at least six months and over the past couple of weeks, I've been like totally ecstatic because I'm starting to realize like, oh, this is happening and we're going to save this school. So yeah, I'm just, I've just been really pumped about that. And it's. Abby, you, you and Bernice Radel and Monty, you, you all are like the Tatiana Maria of, (laughs) of, of design and architecture and, and, and uh, sort of incremental development. Um, you know, nobody else could do it except the three of you um, in, well, in when I was, spaces, but you guys are amazing. Well, when I was at CNU back in March, I just kept saying like all week, I was like, the incremental developers are ahead of their time in terms of like the next generation of practice in the built environment. I think that what they're doing is seriously revolutionary and amazing. And I'm actually trying to have Bernice on next week. Oh, so good. Good. stay tuned for that. Yeah, <laughs> because there is a great article um, about Buffalo, New York that I want to talk to her about. And she's never been on this show, but anybody who knows who she is will know that she is a very interesting and captivating and inspiring person who is doing amazing development work. And so, yeah, it's just been, you know, it working with this client on this, on this school project has just been a really, it's been a learning opportunity, just like working with Monty on this. Um, but, but it's like his approach really does work. 
it's, I mean, it's like, you know, it, it's a, I want to pull my hair out for six months and then it starts <laughs> to all come together. So, you know, it's a lot of highs and lows for sure. But, you know, we're all just addicted to drama, I guess. Here's to the big out of the box thinkers like Wally Hickel and Monty Anderson. Cheers to I, you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every community needs one, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. The, the, the stray cats, outdoor cats, as I say. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, we'll end it there. Thanks, Jay, for joining me so much. Uh, always a great time talking to you. Uh, and thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Jay. Let me show you what I'm about to do.